All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to DPP, Daily Power Power Show for today, Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022. We have a very intriguing reading to read today. Remember this week, we have the ecstasy, ecstasy, and the agony. The high and the low, the high of the Mishkan, the completion of the tabernacle, the completion of this project, the coming down to earth of the divine, of the Shrina, divine presence, and then tragedy strikes. We read about this yesterday, the passing of Nadav and Avihu, the two oldest sons of Aaron. So Aaron, Aaron is the high priest. He has four sons. On the first day, the first grand opening day, his two sons, the two oldest sons, lose their lives. Why? They brought an Aish Zara, a foreign fire that they were not supposed to bring. What exactly did they do wrong or what exactly happened? Depends who you ask. Different commentaries, different opinions. Moses has his own opinion. Moses says, because God took the ones that were close to him. That's what Moses says, right? But be that as it may, we have the, the mystical idea, the Hasidic angle on it, that it was um, an idea of, of spiritual ecstasy without a without, without grounding. It was a short circuit, a spiritual soul sort, uh, short circuit where the souls leapt out of the body, kolot hanefesh. Whatever the reason is, whatever the exact cause, they lost their lives and immediately a, a, a family is plunged into mourning. Moses, though, instructed the family, namely Aaron and his remaining two sons, not to practice the overt signs of mourning. Don't let the hair grow long. Don't rip the garments. In other words, do not show outwardly signs of mourning amidst the celebration of the day, amidst the opening of the Mishkan. Others will mourn for you, but not right now. You yourselves, not right now. Um, Somebody mentioned yesterday, it's akin to the idea um, of postponing perhaps a shiva till after a holiday, etc. I think, oh, I think I saw I mentioned, right? So it's the idea of like pushing off the Avelos, pushing off the morning until a later stage. As of right now, it would not be. Moses says to Aaron, it's not the right thing to do to just pull the plug on everything and, and, and enter a state of mourning. All right, with this in mind, let's resume the narrative. Okay, um, I'm going to pull up my screen. Give me a very quick moment. And we are ready to roll. Okay, today is Wednesday, reading number four. The communication continues. Oh, one more thing. God spoke to Aaron right after the passing of his two sons, the two oldest sons, and said, don't enter the sanctuary while intoxicated, which led some of the sages to conclude that that might have been at the core of what the problem was. All right, Leviticus chapter 10, verse number 12, the narrative continues. And Moses spoke to Aaron and his surviving sons, who were Elazar and Itamar. Moses said to them, take the meal offering that is left over from the Lord's fire offerings. In other words, remember there were four offerings. Let's Let's remind ourselves, four offerings were to be brought by Aaron and his sons on that opening day. There was a sin offering, a burnt offering, a peace offering, and a meal offering. The meal offering is something that's made, comprised of flour and oil, etc. So Moses tells Aaron, take the meal offering that is left over from the Lord's fire offerings and eat it as unleavened loaves beside the altar, for it is a holy of holies. In other words, 
you take, as is the protocol, you take a fistful, a three-finger fistful, a representation of the meal offering, that is burned on the altar, and the rest is consumed by the Kohanim. Moses tells Aaron that the show must go on. And there's the meal offering that needs to be consumed, that needs to be eaten, continue the job, continue the protocol, continue the service as was intended, and eat the rest of the meal offering as unleavened loaves next to the altar. It is a holy of holies, as we've described that before. That means it's a limitation of who can eat it and where. Um, and when, eat this offering, it's yours to eat. Moses continues, you shall eat it in a holy place, i.e. in the temple, because it is your portion and your son's portion from the Lord's fire offerings, for so I have been commanded. Moses says, God has told me that this is what you are supposed to eat. It's your portion from the meal offering. There's a meal offering. Some, a very small part, goes on the altar and in the fire. The rest of it you are supposed to eat and you, are, you, and you shall eat it today. Then he continues, the breast of the waving and the thigh of the raising up. That refers to the shlamim offering, the peace offering. So these parts of the animal you shall eat in a clean place. You and your sons and your daughters with you. For as your portion and your son's portion, they have been given from the peace offerings, as I mentioned a moment ago, of the children of Israel. Moses is doubling down on this. The show must go on. Eat the meal offering. Eat your portion of the peace offering as well. I hope you realize what's going on here. None of this is new information. What we have here is Moses emphasizing and reiterating to Aaron to continue the protocol. Eat what you're supposed to be eating. Don't shut down because of the tragedy. They shall bring the thigh of the raising up and the breast of the waving. Right? So... Certain, part, certain parts of the animal should be brought upon the fats for fire offerings also on the altar to wave as a waving before the Lord and it shall belong to you and to your sons with you as an eternal due as the Lord has commanded. Moses says to Aaron, again, part of the peace offering you should eat, part of the peace offering you shall burn, the meal offering part of it you shall burn on the altar, part of it you shall eat as normal. Now, we don't have the, 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 the narrative in this reading, we're going to do today, um, today we're going to do, what do I want to do? I think I want to do four and five. Um, so so we're kind of in the middle of this narrative. It's pretty straightforward. We're going to toggle Rashi to get some more details. But understand that there's an inner tension here. Because Aaron and his sons have just lost their sons and their brothers respectively, right? They've lost a very, very close family members. Moses is telling them, continue the job as usual. This will create some tension, as we'll see in the, in the very next reading. Let's see Rashi now. Okay. Um, the surviving sons. Moses spoke to Aaron and their surviving sons, i.e. Aaron's sons, who survived death, Rashi says. Okay. Um, what does it mean, survive death? Why should they die? Survive death means that they were subject to death, and that, but they survived it. So Rashi explains, this teaches us that because of the sin of the golden calf, the death penalty had been imposed upon them too. In other words, theoretically, everyone should have faced the, uh, the hammer from the golden calf. Maybe also uh, because of Aaron's participation on some level. Maybe like what Ray said yesterday. I don't know. Um, this is the meaning of, and with Aaron, the Lord was very furious to destroy him. Yeah, 
There you go. That's exactly what he says. The term destruction always denotes the destruction of children, specifically. God forbid. As it is said, but I destroy the fruits, the fruit above. Fruit meaning children. Moses' prayer, however, affected the nullification of half of the decree, resulting in the survival of Elazar and Itamar, two of the sons. As it is said, I also prayed for Aaron at that time, where the word also includes Aaron's four sons. I also prayed for Aaron means I prayed for Aaron and also his children. His prayer, Moses' prayer, was effective for half, 50% of the children. Two survived, but two did not. And here we have another rationale for the, for the death of Aaron's two sons, is that it was a, a leftover punishment from the sin of the golden calf. There you go. In case you were wondering, all the different uh, positions amongst the commentaries, we have many, many reasons why they, they potentially lost their lives. God, uh, Moses tells his brother and his nephews, take the meal offering, and again, Rashi addresses the underlying drama. Although you are onanim, mourners, for a close relative on the day that that relative's uh, the day of that relative's demise and holy sacrifices are forbidden to an owning typically if a co- if typically if a kohen's uh, loved one passes away they do not eat sacrifices they do not serve on that day no they do not typically they do not this is an exception because this is opening day and the show must go on are you guys with me on this this is moses telling i mean we listen we may disagree and the truth is Aaron himself disagrees, as we'll see in the next reading. There's drama that breaks out between the brothers um, in, in the family right now. Is what should they do? What should they, what should they not do? But before we get to the drama, what Moses, his message to his brother is, although typically a Kohen, you know, would not serve, would not eat, would not, etc. This is different. Um, okay, meal offering. What meal offering are we referring to? Rashi says this is the meal offering of the eighth day of the investitures and the meal offering of Nachshon, the son of, uh, of Aminadav, the leader of the tribe of Judah, the first tribe to offer sacrifice for the dedication of the Mishkan. So basically, later on in the book of Numbers, we see that for the first 12 days of the opening of the Mishkan, each tribe gave a certain offering. This was the meal offering of the first of the 12 tribes, which is the tribe of Judah. Nachshon's sacrifice. By the way, Nachshon, if the name sounds familiar, Nachshon, he was the dude who walked into the water by the Red Sea. He walked in before it split, right? And the water got up to his nose, and then finally it split. He was the guy who was willing to go in um, before everyone else. Okay, and eat it as uh, um, as unleavened breads. So Rashi says, but we already know that meal offerings must be eaten unleavened. That was a general commandment. So why does scripture come? So what does scripture come to teach us here? Why does why does Moses tell his brother eat it as unleavened loaves? We know that it's unleavened. So Rashi explains since this was a communal meal offering, and it was a special meal offering brought exclusively at that time. Remember, this was not a daily occurrence. This was only for the grand opening. So it was a very um, special uh, um, experience, and there's nothing like it in future generations. Scripture found it necessary to specify the law of other meal offerings in the context. In, this, in its context, to teach us that those laws apply to, to this meal offering as well. In other words, the Torah wants to double down, or Moses wanted to double down and emphasize that even though one might say this is a different meal offering, right? Manishtana ha meal offering is a meal offerings. This is a, a, a manishtana. This is a different meal offering because the regular meal offerings are consistent. This is a one-time deal for the inauguration. Nonetheless, it follows the same protocol, i.e., it has to be baked as matzah 
on unleavened, unleavened loaves. Um, literally, the Hebrew word is matzot, matzos, aviachlu matzos. Eat it as matzah, unleavened loaves. Okay, let's continue. The next Rashi. Um, For so I have been commanded, Moses tells his brother, that they eat it when they are onanim. Mourners for a close relative on the day of that relative's demise and burial. In other words, typically, I, I feel like I want to clarify this, although I, I mentioned it before and I think I did a decent job of explaining it. Let me just explain it again. An onin in halacha, or onin in halacha, is someone who um, has lost a loved one on that first day of the passing. In other words, before they've been laid to rest, like kind of like everything is, like the loss is, is very much immediate and fresh. And Jewish law states that an onan, like someone who's in that state of mourning, is off the hook, essentially, for the positive mitzvot. You don't have to, you don't have an obligation to say the Shema at a certain amount of time, within a certain specified time period, or, you know, wrapped fill-in, or like any mitzvah, positive mitzvah, that has, you know, a time-specific requirement, the person is absolved from, because the understanding is that they have a lot to deal with, including their own grief, including the burial, you know, laying the, the loved one to rest, and they are relinquished, they're absolved from other commitments. Now... Um, if a person can do certain things, then they certain things they can do, certain things they can do. But in certain situations, it's actually not appropriate to do certain things. Like, for example, going to work. That would be something where Jewish law would say, mm, even once the funeral arrangements are made, maybe you shouldn't be showing up to work like a normal day. Maybe you should be taking the day off and to honor it as a, as a thing. In this case, this was a major exception. Because typically a Kohen would not do the service. A Kohen would not eat from the sacrifices on the day that they're in Onan. They wouldn't do it. But in this case, Moses tells Aaron and his sons, the, the remaining sons, the surviving sons, you got to do this. The show must go on, even though you're an Onan, and typically an Onan does not, does not eat from the sacrifices or work. You got to work. You got to do this. You got to eat this. This is your job. Um, okay. Let's continue inside. And look at the Rashi's. Um, I have a question. Yes. I have a question. Sure. What are the rules um, when you're talking about death and mourning and the time periods for the family of a person that commits suicide? Yeah. So um, it typically would be the same. It typically would be the same. The understanding is, look, uh, suicide is against Jewish law. So there was a time where there was a, an idea that, oh, if someone commits suicide, then, you know, it's, um, uh, it's like, uh, um, it's a sin. It's the ultimate sin, taking a life, taking one's own life. But today, you know, we know that that doesn't happen flippantly, and it typically is the product of, um, of, of intense inner pain, and so it's it, 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 the person is looked at not not typically typically is not as a perpetrator, but as a victim of illness essentially of like mental illness. So therefore the um, so therefore the um, 
the rules would pretty much, or the protocol would pretty much follow the same, the same thing. Again, there, there was, you know, at some point in time, a, a teaching, a theoretically at least, that, you know, and I don't, I don't know that I would know the, the, the specific details without you know, refreshing my memory and looking up those laws, but that someone who takes their own life, you know, that's like, again, the, the ultimate crime, you know, murder, and this is not only murder, but taking one's own life, like, the ultimate crime, and therefore, you know, like, uh, minimize the, you know, the, uh, the funeral, the, the thing, and minimize the, you know, the mourning period, etc., that, that sort of thing. But today, it's, we, we know his that... His explanation from yesterday was like, his sons committed suicide. Right. The one thing that I read from the Habad was that because they wanted to be with God so badly, they were considered to have committed suicide. That's interesting. I, I, I don't know that I've heard it like framed like that, but that's an interesting take. That they almost, yeah, that they like committed spiritual suicide. The question is, I would even, I would still ask the question, you know, notwithstanding that explanation in general that their souls were so excited about God, did they realize that it would end like this? Or did they... Did they get swept up in the moment? You know, are they are they are they fully culpable? Did they know of such a precedent? I'll give you another an, another frame of reference for this. You know, Cain and Abel, right? So Cain kills his brother, but there are some commentaries that say that you know uh, he was clearly guilty of premeditated murder. But I mean, we we think that he's clearly uh, clearly guilty of premeditated murder. But did he even know what murder was? I mean, did he even know that it was possible to take take a life? No one had died. Did he know what he was doing? So, you know, we talk about spiritual ecstasy. Had anyone that they knew up until that, at, you know, before that point, experienced what they experienced and, and had their souls actually leap out of their bodies? Was that a thing? Did they know that? You know, at Sinai, it says, or sages say at Sinai, when God spoke, and I think we've discussed this before, when God um, uttered the commandments, the souls leapt out of their bodies. And God had to revive them. Maybe they thought they would be revived. In other words, maybe they thought that an out-of-body experience, literally, an out-of-body experience is met with uh, rejoining of soul and body. Maybe God steps in. Maybe they were counting on that. See, I'm speculating because I don't know. But I don't know that anyone knows. And, and I think that doesn't take away from that insight, the mystical insight, which is that they had, the, the high was a little bit too big to handle. That's true. The question is, do we hold them do we blame them? Now, we can learn a lesson. It's clear that we can learn a lesson that that's not the ideal. I mean, that's clear that we're not supposed to follow that path. But the question is, are they to blame for it? Or do we hold them accountable for it? How did they know? I would argue, how did they know? How did they know that they weren't going to be able to come back? Did they know? Did they chart it out? I mean, maybe they did. I don't know. Anyway, it's a, but it's an intriguing thing to... to, to to kind of correlate it to a sort of spiritual suicide. It's a very interesting maybe take. Maybe that's why that they can't drink, because they lose their sensibility. People, the Cohen can't drink anymore. Right, maybe then you don't know boundaries, exactly. Aaron right. ruined it, Aaron's sons ruined it for everybody. They ruined the L'chaim, the Kiddush Club for everybody. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very intriguing thing. But I, I, I hear what you're saying, that maybe if they if they were culpable of their own demise, then maybe that's why the mourning is minimized for Aaron and his sons because the another and a view had done something wrong. So maybe that's what. But I don't think that that's. 
I don't know if you were suggesting that, but I'm just kind of connecting dots here. But I don't know that that is the reason. To me, my understanding based on the commentaries is the reason why they were told to keep the morning on the down low was because of the celebration, but not just the celebration, but because of the specific commandment from God, the same God that took their lives, essentially, or allowed their lives to be taken, however you want to call it, also also um, declared that this protocol be followed on that day and God had not issued a, a, um, a backtracking of that plan. God didn't communicate to Moses saying, oh, now that this tragedy happened, tell Aaron he's, he has the day off. That didn't happen. So therefore Moses tells Aaron, the show must go on. Is it connected to their own culpability and their deaths? That's an interesting angle on it, on that that I've never considered. I need to think about that, but it's an interesting, interesting take. But wouldn't it be an unknown culpability? I mean, they didn't want to die. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, on some level, we can say that their souls did not want to be held back by the body. But I, but again, I would push back a drop, not really push back, but I would just counter that potentially with, you know, everyone had that experience collectively at Sinai where the souls were so excited about divine revelation, they literally leapt out of the bodies. But then they got sent back. They were, nope, back you go. Maybe that was it. By the way, just so you know, I didn't mention this yesterday. I should have. The Talmud tells a story. Fascinating story. Arba Nichnas Lepardes. There were four great sages who entered the Pardes. The, the um, um, orchard. Pardes literally means an orchard. Like an, uh, yeah, but, but the understanding of the commentaries is it was not an ordinary orchard. It was a spiritual experience, a very spiritual experience. It says, uh, who, who were the people? It was um, um, Rabbi Lisha ben Avuya. It was, um, I'm forgetting which four. Rabbi Akiva was, I know two of them. Okay, I'm forgetting the other two. Either way, maybe Ben Azai, uh, but I'm not sure. Anyway. One of them died. One of them uh, lost his mind. One of them became a heretic and only Rabbi Akiva entered in peace and left in peace. That's what the Talmud says. And Hasidic philosophy explains this. Jewish wisdom explains that the orchard was not, they didn't just walk into a garden and, and one went crazy, one lost his life. Look, they went into a very lofty spiritual meditative state. Meditative. They went into a very lofty spiritual state. And one of them never returned. And one of them, even when he did return, he wasn't with all of his faculties. And the other one couldn't come back and therefore became a heretic. And the other one, only Rabbi Akiva, came back okay. And the way it's explained in Chassidus is because he entered in peace and he left in peace. It's because he entered the experience in a grounded way that he was able to leave the experience in a grounded way. Which means it's kind of like uh, um, adjacent to what we said yesterday. You know, when you have like a, like a spiritual high, like a Yom Kippur or whatever it is, and then you crash afterwards, it's like, okay, now, now you're back down to earth and nothing changes. So that spiritual high left. The question is, when you went into the experience, were you creating a framework to integrate it back in, in daily life? Were you thinking about the integration when you were having that experience, or did you get just carried away with that experience? And that's kind of what happens, it seems like, with um, Aaron's two sons, that they got carried away with the experience. Now, were they banking on some sort of supernatural re, um, redeposit of the soul? Possibly. That's my, that's my uh, 
thesis that I'm developing today. But but did they know what that meant? I don't know that they knew what that fully meant. But I think in the moment they were intoxicated, they were high on on the high, and that doesn't always end well. Even in the Tal- Talmudic story, it didn't end, for three out of four. It did not end and well, it did not end well for. So, just uh, you know, clearly notes of caution here. Okay, let's jump back inside. Um, Okay, I'm going to skip the Rashi's here because I think we, we have a, a, an understanding of what's going on. Now we get to the drama. This is family feud, family drama. And I, I, I don't mean to say that flippantly. Um, it's not really family drama. It's a, um, a clarification that Moses requires from his brother. Actually, from his nephews first. So take a look at this. Very cryptic. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 16, reading 5. Okay, we're moving on to the next reading. And Moses thoroughly investigated concerning the sin offering he goat. If you recall, there were multiple sin offerings brought that day. There was the bull sin offering that was brought by um, Aaron and his sons on their own behalf. And then there was a sin offering he goat that was also offered on behalf of the community and this one was brought on the occasion of it being Rosh Chodesh. So let me explain. Every Rosh Chodesh, there, it, Rosh Chodesh means the first of the Jewish month. Every Rosh Chodesh, there's a special set of offerings that are brought. One of them is a sin offering he goat. Why a sin offering? You might recall that when God, remember when God made the moon smaller? Remember the Talmud says that the moon complained, you can't have two kings. Originally, the moon was as big, was as, was as bright as the sun, and then the moon complained, so God made the moon smaller, and the moon said, it's not fair, I, I raised the complaint, and you made me smaller, you gave me a demotion, yeah, it's not fair. So God says, all right, ultimately fine, but you'll, they'll bring a sin offering on my behalf, or bring a sin offering on Rosh Chodesh. So every Rosh Chodesh, there was a sin offering brought, and it was a, a goat, a male goat, Okay. So now, um, Moses investigates this animal. What happened to this animal? What, what did they end up doing? Again, he's not a Kohen. His brother and his nephews are. What did they do with the he-goat? Did they eat it? Did they burn it? What happened? Let's, let's, read, let's read this inside. Okay, Moses thoroughly investigated concerning the sin offering he-goat. And behold, it had been burnt. They didn't eat it. They burned it. So he, Moses, was angry with Allah and Itamar, Aaron's surviving sons. So listen to this. Listen to this. Moses checks into the goat, realizes that the goat has been burned, and becomes angry. And then he said to his nephews, notice he doesn't uh, speak to his brother. He goes after the nephews. Okay. It's an interesting little... A thing to notice. And he says to them as follows, why did you not eat the sin offering in the holy place? Why didn't you eat it? You burnt it. You're supposed to eat it. For it is holy of holies. Now we know what holy of holies means. Holy of holies means a sacrifice that needs to be eaten by a certain type of person in a certain place within a certain amount of time. This is a Kodesh HaKadoshim. This is a holy of holies offering that should be eaten in the holy place. And he, God, has given it to you to gain forgiveness for the sin of the community, to effect their atonement before the Lord. This is at Rosh Chodesh. Oh, I, I don't think I mentioned, I don't think I um, I closed that circle. That day, this day, was Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first day of Nisan. 
Right? The eighth day of the inauguration was Rosh Chodesh Nisan. So they were bringing, in addition to all of the other offerings, they were bringing a Rosh Chodesh offering because it was the first of the month of Nisan. And so this was a he-goat sin offering, a male goat for a sin offering on behalf of the community. And Moses looks into it, and it had been burnt completely on the altar. And Moses turns to his nephews and says, why'd you burn it? You're supposed to eat it. Day one, and you're getting it wrong. Are you with me on this? Day one... And you're getting it wrong. You're supposed to eat it, at least part of it, and you burnt the whole thing. It's not a burnt offering. It's a sin offering that part of it is supposed to be eaten. So what's going on? Okay, let's continue. So, and then he tries to find excuses, but he shuts them down. He says, behold, its blood was not brought into the sanctuary within. Now, we, sorry for keeping, for, I didn't keep on doing this, but I want to be able to see you guys. Um, a sin offering, if you recall, because we're now experts in all the offerings. We went through everything, I, mean, I would hope at this point. So a sin offering, as you recall, was brought completely outside the Mishkan, the, the tabernacle building. It was um, slaughtered outside, I, mean, in other words, I don't mean outside the whole courtyard, but out in the courtyard area, its blood was dashed on the outer altar. It, some of it was burnt in the outer altars. The rest of it, some of it was burnt outside the camp, and some of it was eaten in the temple courtyard. But none of its blood was brought inside the Mishkan building. Well, what if they would mess that up? What if they would make a mistake? What if they would take a sin offering and take some of the blood and bring it inside the Mishkan? You know what happens then? Then you have to burn it. The whole you have to burn the whole animal because you messed up. The whole thing the whole thing has to be burnt on the altar, because an ola, a burnt offering, is where you bring the blood inside. You with me on what I just said? When you, you you only bring the blood inside when it's a burnt offering. So if you take a sin offering and then you make a mistake and you bring the blood inside the mishkan and apply it to the inner altar or the inner curtains, whatever it is, then you got to burn the whole animal. So Moses said, listen to this. Moses says to his nephews, I investigated. You didn't bring the blood inside. You see? You see what he's saying? You didn't mess up and bring it inside, which would have required you to burn the animal. You followed the, the blood protocol correctly, applying it to the outer altar. So why didn't you eat it? You see? He says, if you had made a mistake and brought the blood inside, got the bloods confused and brought it inside the Mishkan building, then you would have to burn it. And I understand you made a mistake, but you didn't make a mistake. You, you, the blood you applied outside, like, like uh, in the outer altar. You did everything right. So why didn't you eat it? Why did you burn it? Okay. Basically, what he's sensing from them is that they went against his orders. He had told them, Business as usual, you can eat the sacrifices, even though you're in a state of mourning. And what did they do? They burnt it. So he feels triggered on some level. He became angry. It's not even I'm saying this. The Torah itself says it. He got angry at them. Let's look at, let's look at it back inside, right? He was angry with the Lazar Nitamar. And he said, why did you not eat it? Right? Behold, its blood, verse 18, we're going to start again. Behold, its blood was not brought into the sanctuary within... In other words, which would have caused you to have to burn it because you messed up in the blood. You didn't mess up in the blood. Everything was followed correctly. So you should have surely eaten it within the holy precincts as I commanded. I told you that even though you're in a state of mourning, you're still supposed to eat the sacrifices on this day. So Moses goes after his nephews. Who speaks up? Aaron. 
So Aaron spoke to Moses. But today, did they offer up their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord? But if tragic events like these had befallen me, and if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have pleased the Lord? This answer, super cryptic, as written. If you, you can read this a thousand times and not really understand what Aaron is saying. But here's what we know, and I'm going to explain it in a moment. But here's what we know. Look at verse 20. Moses heard this, and it pleased him. Aaron explains why they burnt it, and Moses gets it, and he drops it. Makes sense. What was the answer? What was the answer? It all goes back to this. Moses told his brother and his nephews, business as usual, all of the offerings that you're supposed to eat, eat it. I know you're mourning. I know you're in a state of onen, of, of mourning, of acute mourning, like day one of loss. Eat it anyway. Now Moses turns around and they burnt the sin offering that they should have eaten. What are you doing? The answer, and this is what Aaron tells his brother, the secret to the answer lies in what, which animal which sacrifice this was. I told you before, this was a Rosh Chodesh he-goat. Remember I told you that? It was a Rosh Chodesh sin offering he-goat. This would be brought every Rosh Chodesh, which means this was not an offering. Hold on, hold on. Let me slow, let me slow it down, a drop. The goat that is becoming an issue here was brought as a sin offering on behalf of the community be, not because of the inauguration, but because it was the first day of the month of Nisan. It was a Rosh Chodesh offering. That animal, that he-goat, would be brought every month on Rosh Chodesh from that day on. As long as a temple or a mishkan stood, that would be brought consistently. Aaron tells his brother, when God is telling you, and when you're telling us the show must go on, it means specifically, God meant specifically for those offerings that were unique to opening day for the inauguration. In other words, offerings that could only be brought on this day and never again in history because there's never again an opening day. So those offerings that needed to be brought day one, opening day, those were meant to eat even though we're in a state of mourning. But an offering that will be brought next month, and the month after that, and the month after that, and the month after that, we are not going to violate the typical protocol and eat it in a state of mourning. Rather, we are going to burn it as is the everlasting protocol. In other words, there are two systems of rules. There were rules for the day and rules for all time. And what Aaron is saying is, you want to make exceptions to the rule, make exceptions to the rules, uh, you make exceptions to the sacrifices that are for that day. But sacrifices that are on a recurring basis, like the Rosh Chodesh sacrifice, it's not unique to opening day, it's just Rosh Chodesh sacrifice, that there's not going to be an exception made, and that's going to follow the typical protocol that will always be for all time, which is, when you're in a state of mourning, you do not eat it and you burn it. Does that make sense? What Aaron said? Basic, no? All right, basically Aaron said that there's two categories of sacrifices that were being brought on that one day. Sacrifices that were unique to the day and sacrifices that are kind of eternal sacrifice, everlasting. 
recurring sacrifices, Rosh Chodesh. So maybe this is what I have to focus on, making sure it's clear. There were many animals brought on that day. A lot of them were brought on that day because it was opening day of the Mishkan. But there was one animal that was brought on that day because it was Rosh Chodesh, which is incidental to the fact that it was opening day. It was opening day is offerings that would only be brought on that day and never again in history. And the Rosh Chodesh sacrifice would be brought every month for as long as the temple stood. So Aaron was telling his brother that when God says the show must go on, that's referring to opening day sacrifices, not the Rosh Chodesh sacrifice. Maybe Rashi explains it better. Um, maybe, maybe there's better words there that will, uh, that will make this make more sense. It's a short reading, but wow, look at these Rashis. Um, take a look at what Rashi says. Um, on that day, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, okay, three sin offering goats were sacrificed. Okay, um, There was the he goat, the, the, um, one he goat is a sin offering. There was the he goat of Nachshon, okay, and the he goat of Rosh Chodesh. So actually three, three male goats were brought as sin offerings. One, unique to the day. One, unique to the dedication of the tribe of Judah, and one because of Rosh Chodesh. Now, of all of these, of all the three um, goats, sin offerings, the only one burnt was this one, the additional offering of Rosh Chodesh, the Rosh Chodesh he goat. And why did they burn it? So here we go. Um, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Some say, some said, I didn't tell you the first opinion, I told you the second. Some said that it was burnt on account of uncleanliness that had come into contact with it. While others said, ah, that seems like an incidental reason. While others said, and this is what I told you, that it was, be, that it was burnt, this third he-goat. Why? Because Aaron's sons were owning him. Because this sacrifice came under the category of holy sacrifices that would also be sacrificed in future generations. Thus, they deemed it fit for burning as the law would require for future generations. In other words, this was a sacrifice the Rosh Chodesh sacrifice that would be sacrificed in future generations as well. This would be something recurring for all time. Thus, the protocol needs to be the protocol that would also happen for all time. And the protocol that will typically happen for all time is when you're in a state of, of onan, when you're in a state of, of, of mourning, you don't, you don't eat it, you burn it. So that's what they did. Thus, they deemed it fit for burning. Okay. However, when it came to holy sacrifices that were brought only at that time, like the other two goat offerings, they relied on Moses who had said to them regarding the meal offering, eat it as unleavened loaves, even though they were onanim, assuming that since their meal offering was brought only at that time, so must Moses' command apply to all holy sacrifices brought at that time only. So, you know, you ever walk into a store and they have a one-day-only sale? And then you have stuff that's discounted always? Yeah. So, like, you walk into Kroger. Right? I'm giving a you know, random uh, parallel here. You walk into Kroger and they have a sale. I don't think Publix has sales, right? Publix, nothing's on sale. Or maybe, no, maybe there is, there, no, there are sales. No, for sure there are sales in Publix. They do, their concept is two for one. So every yeah. week they have like 20 items. Right. Two for two one. For, yeah. Okay. So imagine you walk into Kroger and they have, um, you know, a, a, a limited time sale. Right? You get it now for this price, you're not going to get it. Then they have other things that are in general. This guy, and they, and they put like yellow labels, check out our low price. Not that it's lower than normal, but it's, uh, you know, check out the price. This is always the price. There were two, sacri two types of sacrifices. There were sac on, on that day. 
on opening day. There were sacrifices that are limited time only, one day only sale. This will be the only time in history that those offerings were going to be brought because never again is it going to be opening day. And then there were other offerings that were brought that would be brought again. So like the Rosh Chodesh offering would be brought again the next month and the month after that and the month after that. It's not unique. It's not unique to that one. It's not a one day only opportunity. But the, the sin offering on behalf of the inauguration, that was one day only. The, the sin offering on behalf of the tribe of Judah for the inauguration, that's one time only. They never did that again. That was one time only. So when Moses said to them, eat the offerings even though you're mourning, they understood that it was only those that could never again be brought. It was, only, it was the one day only offerings. Those are the ones that you have to eat even though you're in a state of mourning. But the offerings that will be recurring throughout history, we don't make an exception to, that, to, that, to, the, to those offerings. Why? Because those will run by the law that, 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 that is in effect for all, for, for all of history. In other words, the, one, the offerings that are one day only have a one day only rule. The offerings that are for all time have the for all time rule. So the one day only rule is, in this case, eat it anyway, even though you're mourning. The all time rule is, you burn it if you're in a state of mourning. So they burnt that third he goat that was for Rosh Chodesh. They burnt it. Moses investigated. He, he went over to, this, to, to his nephews. They didn't answer. Aaron himself answered his brother, and he told him essentially what we just said. Okay, he thoroughly investigated. Darosh um, Darash in Hebrew. Darosh Darash means he investigated, he investigated. It's a double expression. Moses asked, why has this sacrifice been burnt and why have the other sacrifices not been eaten? Um, okay, why did he go after his nephews? Out of respect for Aaron, his brother, Moses turned toward his sons and was angry with them, even though he was angry with Aaron as well regarding what happened. So he was angry at his brother, but he didn't go after his brother. He went after his uh, nephews, um, saying to them, answer my questions. Okay. Um, Right. He said the blood wasn't brought inside, for had its blood been brought into the holy, then indeed you would have been required to burn it. Yeah, as it says that any sin offering, some of whose blood was brought into the head of the meeting, shall not be eaten, it shall be burned in the fire, like we learned um, previously. So, uh, Aaron's response. Aaron boldly responded to the investigation. By the way, Rashi says they could have answered. They could have answered. Uh, sorry, Elazar and Itamar, the sons, could have answered Moses' issue. They could have explained it. But, um, here we go. Is it possible, Rashi says, that Moses addressed his anger to Elazar and Itamar and Aaron answers? Why did that happen? However, this demonstrates to us that the behavior of Aaron's sons was only out of respect. They said it is inappropriate that while our father is sitting in front of us, we should answer in his presence. And it's also inappropriate that a disciple should refute his master. In other words, they said it's, it would be disrespectful for us to answer Moses. Even though they got accused, they felt it would be disrespectful to answer, so their father answered. Okay, let's continue. Um, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. One second, one second, one second. Okay, here we go. Here's the, here's the conclusion. Here's the big finish right here. This is Aaron to Moses. Moses says, how come you didn't need it? And Aaron says, if you heard the special law, 
that an onain may eat holy sacrifice brought exclusively for a special occasion, like, like the people sin offering goat and Nachshon's goat, both offered just today. In other words, you, Moses, heard from God that the show must go on. Okay, today's show must go on. But you have no right to be lenient regarding this law, regarding holy sacrifices offered for future generations, like the sacrifice of Rosh Chodesh, about which you asked us, why did you not eat? In other words, just because you got a dispensation for today that we're supposed to eat the offering, that, that only means the offerings for today. But what about a Rosh Chodesh offering that's going to be offered for all time? I know it was also offered today, but it's, 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 it's not exclusive to the day. Therefore, you have no right to apply that as well, that dispensation, to a Rosh Chodesh offering. And that's why we burnt it, because we did not receive permission to eat it. Moses heard it, and it pleased him. Take a look. Moses admitted that Aaron was correct and was not ashamed, for he could have covered up by saying, I have not heard this law. He could have said, I didn't know it. He could have excused himself. He didn't. He said, you're right. Rather, Moses frankly said to Aaron, you are right. I did hear that an oni must not eat from sacrifices that will be offered in future generations, but I forgot. He told Aaron, you're right. God did tell this to me, but I forgot it, and you are correct. So, my friends, we have a bit of a technical um, uh, dispute in this, in, the, in this second of the two readings that we covered today, reading number five. The good news is, it's resolved. The interesting thing is that we see that Moses got angry, and because he got angry, he forgot the law. Uh, sorry, I jumped ahead. Um, the Talmud says, the Medrash says, that there are multiple occasions in Torah where we see that Moses got angry, and as a result, he forgot the law. Like in this case, he got angry. How come you did why, why did you burn it? Why did you eat it? And he forgot the distinction of, kutche, of, of the offerings that were just for that day and offerings that would be recurring throughout history. He forgot that distinction that God had told him. So what we see, our sages tell us that when we get angry, human nature, when we get angry, we lose our head. When we get angry, we forget things that are very important. We lose perspective. So what's the moral of the story? Don't get angry. It's easier to remember things when you're not angry. When you're angry, or even I would, I would extend it to when you're panicked, when you're nervous, angry, nervous, I'm kind of like lumping together now, then you can't think straight. You can't operate in a healthy way. So it's very important that we are in control of our emotions, which brings me to tomorrow night, the Joy Factory. It's very good to be in control and to know how to mediate our emotions because when our fears, when our anger gets the better of us, we are not better off. We are worse off. Not only are we angry or scared or anxious, etc. not only that, but we can't think straight either. We can't even get ourselves out of it because now, we're, now our minds are not functioning at 100% capacity the way it should be because of the emotional swirling that's happening. The, the Talmud tells us, or sages tell us, that even Moses, when he got angry, he ended up forgetting the law. This is not the only time. There's a few times, three or four times in Torah, that the Torah tells us that Moses got angry and subsequently he forgot a detail or a law. So, moral of the story, don't get angry. Also, I need to tell you one other insight. I'll show you something that I think is very cool. Um, I'm going to turn Rashi off for a second and share this, this little factoid. Those two words in the Hebrew, darosh, darash, which means thoroughly investigated, but it, the Hebrew is darosh, darash, means he investigated, he investigated. It's, it's a repeat. It's a double expression. So, this is half of the Torah in words. Let me explain. The, the, if you count the total number of words, this, these two words constitute the midway point in the, in the entire Torah. If you counted all the words, 
these two words or the midpoint? In other words, the midpoint is actually in between these two words. There's an even number of words. You guys with me on this? There's an even number of words. And this is the halfway point right in between these this two. So I once heard a beautiful explanation. Darosh Darash means investigate, investigate. It means when you study Torah, you always have to keep on investigating and keep on, never believe that you have it mastered, you got it down pat, you understand it, you got it in your back pocket, you get it. Darosh Darash, always remain curious, always remain investigative, always remain hungry to learn more. Whether on this side of the half of Torah, you know, whether you're still in the first half of learning, second half of learning, it doesn't matter where you are, but what makes Torah special, what makes our relationship with Torah special is that we never stop learning, we never stop investigating, asking, exploring, discussing, right? And, 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 and probing deeper in the wisdom of Torah. All right, that's a little bit of insight. Yes, now, Donna. So what linguistically is the difference between Darosh, Darash and Darosh? You're asking the wrong guy. I am not a, I'm not the Hebrew uh, grammar. That's right. There's, the vowels are, the, are different. Correct. There's a little bit of an inflection. I, I'm not qualified to answer that question. Hebrew grammar is not my specialty. But in general, it means investigate, investigate. Darosh, Darash, it was investigated. Because he investigated. The pronunciation is different. Yeah. Right. No, there's there, there there are different no, there must be different nuances to the to the meaning. Right. The English just just glosses right over it. Thoroughly investigated means nothing. Right? That's not that's not that's not the uh, it's not a literal translation. What is that literal translation? I don't know. Maybe it's in uh, maybe it's in this book. Maybe this Chumash, the Gunnak edition. Let's see if we have any different thing and then we're gonna we're gonna close it out. Um, oh, yeah, Rashi, uh, this translation says he made two investigations. All right, that's, that's kind of what Rashi said, but that's, it's not, it's, it's also Maybe not a... Past tense or something. I don't know. Anyway. anyway. I wanted to mention quick, so I mean, Moses shows his like human flaws, right? I mean, meaning, you know, we think like Sadiqs are just, you know, we can't approach them. Well, you know, we so it depends how you learn it. If you're lo learning it from a simple perspective, I mean, I don't mean simple, like to put it down, but like from a straightforward perspective, yes. But if you look at it from a deeper perspective, then things are not so simple. And, you know, God forbid to say that Moses sinned, you know, Moses. Uh, anyway, there's different levels to understand this. I, I, would, I, I would feel a little bit uncomfortable to leave it as a very humanistic thing. Like, oh, yeah, Moses, we also get, get angry like Moses, even though I literally said that before. But I, we have to have a little bit of, uh, of, a, of an awareness that no matter how much we're learning about it, he was on a different level. This guy spoke with, with God and he, you know, was the facilitator of so much of Torah. So it, it was on a different level. His anger is not like our, our anger, right? So we can't like put it, you know, down. We can't uh, um, put him down to our level. At the same time, I think there's a valid instruction to learn here, which is at least for us, when we get angry, we lose our heads, and that's not a good place to be. So that's, that's how I would address that. It's like what the Talmud says about King David. King David says that whoever, uh, the Talmud says, <coughs> whoever believes that King David sinned with Bathsheba, etc., is a fool. Now, what do you mean? It says that he sinned. Like, how do you not read that? Okay. So again, there's different, different ways of understanding it. But <coughs> certainly for us, we can learn a very um, practical lesson. All right. I'm going to bounce. Great to see you guys. Tonight, don't forget, tonight is all about the 
Imperfection of Perfection, speaking of which, right? Imperfection of Perfection. That is tonight at 7.30, Torah Studies. Hope to see you all there. And don't forget, tomorrow night, Joy Factory, in town, jewishacademy.org slash joy. All right. See you all soon. Take care. Bye, everybody.